Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Tim Cross, the Economist Science Correspondent, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Coming up today, how the battery revolution has produced a new mineral boom in the Australian outback, the car companies that eventually will develop the electric vehicles are in a scramble to to get their hands on the stuff simply because they feel like there's not enough of it around. Also, climate change. We hear from a European commissioner about what his member states are getting up to to combat it. My vision of science and innovation uh, is called open innovation, open science and open to the world. And how revamped fuse boxes could become the hearts of energy efficient homes. You can look at that central box on a smart firm app and say, well, I'm going to be home early tonight, so let's put the heating on a bit early so you can operate it remotely. So let's start with batteries and the raw materials needed to make them. A flurry of speculation has started in minerals such as lithium, cobalt and nickel, all to feed China's appetite for making batteries for electric vehicles. But there's a scarcity of some of these minerals looming on the horizon, and that's especially so with cobalt. To explain more... I'm joined by Henry Trix, Economist Energy and Commodities Editor. Henry, where are most of these minerals mined in the first place? Well, the lithium that is a key component of the lithium-ion battery is mostly mined in Australia, but it's split between Australia and South America. Chile and Argentina are also big producers of, of lithium. As for cobalt and nickel which are important components of the cathode part of a battery. These mostly come from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a particularly difficult place for mining. It creates problems in the supply chain because there's reported to be a lot of child labour involved, especially in the production of cobalt in the DRC. And that means that if these minerals can be produced in Australia then there will be a lot of reason to go there because it's considered to be a developed country with a lot of transparency, a lot more transparency than you would have in in Africa, which is why, in a sense, the discovery of these minerals and the the development of these minerals in Australia is causing such excitement. And quite apart from the stuff about child labour, which makes, as you say, a lot of people reluctant to use um, cobalt from the DRC, There's a sort of more general shortage of the stuff, isn't there? Yes. The surge in in demand for cobalt in the last year or two is largely based around the fact that battery makers and the car companies that eventually will develop the electric vehicles are in a scramble to to get their hands on the stuff um, simply because they feel like there's not enough of it around. Um, The reason for that is uh, largely because 
cobalt is produced as a byproduct of other um, mining processes. So the mining of nickel or the mining of copper is what tends to produce cobalt. So cobalt is kind of a side product, but demand for it is becoming extremely mainstream. And uh, there's quite a lot of concern that actually there may be shortages of it in the near future, within the next couple of years or so, if battery demand really picks up, which will then sort of undermine some of the economics of the battery business. So you say there's worries about shortages, but is this to some extent a self-solving problem? I mean, as with oil, people often say, well, there's a a shortage of oil, the price rises, and then that spurs people to go looking. And usually they find more, the price comes down again. Could we expect something like that with cobalt, do you think? Or is it just a very rare mineral? Well, that's exactly what I'm writing about in a way in in my article this week. Um, Because what you're finding is that the higher prices of both cobalt and lithium have led to a, a flurry of exploration in Australia. And what you're finding is that, um, for example, in cobalt, there's a company called Cleantech in New South Wales, which has sort of almost miraculously come across a cobalt deposit there where it expects to make even more from the cobalt than it does from the nickel that it's associated with. So the cobalt will be the main product, not so, a byproduct. So the co- cobalt will be what they call a co-product rather than a byproduct. Exactly. This has obviously caused a lot of excitement. There are Chinese companies uh, that have come in and invested in this company, Clean Tech, uh, because they want to secure access to the supply of this mineral. And to a certain extent, the same is same thing is happening with lithium. So there's one big lithium mine in Australia that's been around for about 20 years. In fact, it's the world's biggest lithium producer. It's a a mine called Greenbushes in Western Australia. There's lithium deposits of a lower grade than green bushes in other parts of Western Australia. And as the price of lithium has gone up, these have suddenly become uh, economic to mine. So money is pouring in and also Chinese companies are coming in to try and secure the offtake from these mines as well. You say these are Chinese companies. That's where most of the production is, is going, is it? Why, why China particularly? We're used to thinking um, about lithium-ion batteries and the battery revolution in terms of Tesla and America's role in that. But China is emerging as probably by far the biggest producer of batteries uh, over the next five years or so. And is that because of all the consumer electronics that are produced there, because they use lithium-ion batteries? Or is it the electric car industry? Because, of course, that uses essentially the same battery chemistry as your laptop or your iPhone. Yes, battery manufacturers have um, been gearing up demand for battery minerals for years because of the use of these batteries in in the iPhone, etc. But now it's very much being driven by the car companies. So Chinese firms like Great Wall, which is a car maker, and uh, and Geely are beginning to look for new sources of minerals. Also, you're hearing investment plans announced by companies like Volkswagen um, and, and others. And they're really expected to drive demand for these minerals in the future, as is the demand for batteries for what's called stationary storage, i.e. the sort of huge 100 megawatt batteries that go into balancing the electricity grid. Henry, thanks very much. Thank you, Tim. You're listening to Babbage, the Economist Science and Technology podcast. Next up, climate change. 
In 2015, nearly 200 countries signed up to drastic limits on the amount of greenhouse gases they'll be allowed to emit in the future. But how will this actually happen? Henry mentioned the rise of batteries as an alternative to fossil fuels, and people have talked a lot about the boom in renewable energy. But at the recent Web Summit conference in Lisbon, our environmental correspondent Jan Piotrowski spoke to Carlos Moedas, the European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation, and managed to go into a bit more detail. Commissioner, can you tell us a little bit about what the European Union is doing to promote research and development in in a very crucial area that is the climate change mitigation? We have today uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, programs of science in the world. It's a program called Horizon 2020. It's 80 billion for seven years. So it means that we put around 10, 11 billion per year uh, in terms of science in different fields. And one of our priorities is climate actions and climate change as uh, something that has to be a priority for the world. And first, I think that we were kind of leaders uh, in COP21. We pledged that we would actually double uh, part of one hour uh, investment in terms of energy and clean energy until 2020, where we uh, put 1 billion, go up to around 2 billion. And then we have decided to go in uh, four areas. One, it's renewable energy. So uh, we will give direction to people saying like, look, we're going to invest in this specific area. The second is building efficiency. Third, we will look into e-mobility. What's going to be the cars of the future? Uh, how will they're going to be clean? And then storage. I think storage is one of the major uh, things that we have to invest because you have to find somehow a kind of a battery that will stay forever. And so we will put a lot of money uh, for scientists around the world to come. Our program is open to everybody. My vision of science and innovation uh, is called open innovation, open science and open to the world. So we don't want to have just European scientists. This is a program that is open to, to everybody. Have you seen greater interest from people, either from America itself or from people who might otherwise have gone to America in the past couple of years um, in, uh, in pursuing research in Europe? No, I, I mean, even from before, I think that uh, people uh, from other parts of the world want to come to programs like the European Research Council. Uh, and why? Because it's a program where you give 3 million euros, two and between 2 and 3 million euros to a scientist, and you just let them free. And there's very uh, few programs around the world like that. Today we have around 18% of our grantees that are actually from outside of the world, other parts of the world. So we're very happy with that. And we want more. And of course, I receive a lot of calls from all over the world. And I welcome them all. So how do you choose which projects to back? The Economist has has long had a line that it's industrial policy is problematic. Absolutely. Because... Bureaucrats are not the best necessarily at picking the right winners, right? They're, they're, they like picking winners. The question is whether whether they're picking picking the right ones. How do you minimize that problem? And I agree totally with that. I, I think that we found with our program uh, really an, an amazing way of dealing with that. One is that there's no political decision. So myself talking to you, I cannot take any decision on any project. Second, it's done through peer review of scientists. So we have panels with scientists from all over the world. Mm -hmm. The best of the best, they sit down for a day, they receive all these projects, they rank it through technical peer review, pure science, pure excellence, and they say, these are the best, we give the money. But is, is that a little bit, I mean, scientists are often very conservative by nature. 
So one of the problems could be that sort of, you know, you have a group of scientists who are invested in, in their particular areas and think in the terms of, of the sort of projects that they are accustomed to. And it seems that we need you know, very, I mean, in order yeah, to no, deal no. with this problem, we need revolutionary technologies. Would like revolutionary ideas fall through the cracks in this system, do you think? Yeah, we, and it's a very good that you asked that because I think that one of the changes that we've been trying to implement is that we have different ways of doing it. And the best way we found is something called the European Research Council, where uh, you have a bottom-up approach, meaning that people come with ideas that sometimes are on the edges of disciplines, and you don't judge them discipline by discipline. You have a set of people that are from different subjects, different disciplines, and they are the ones evaluating together. So it's not a group of scientists from that field. And I think that the big revolution for the next couple of years is that the great ideas, the great changes will not come from the core of disciplines, will come from the edges and the intersection with other disciplines. And so that's something that we're going to also implement in the innovation side of our program, where you will have people coming to you with the ideas, and you want those ideas to flourish at the edges. Can you give us an example of, a, of an interesting technology that has already gone you know, from the lab to at least sort of a prototype stage in the, in the past few years in, in, the, in the area of, of greenery, broadly construed? Look, I probably the biggest and the greatest example I have of that is a, a grantee of us called Andre Geim and uh, also Professor Novezelov, who invented and, graphene. And also you Nobel know, Prize winners. I, <laughs> Nobel Prize winners. One of the great things about my profession is to deal with these scientists that gone through our process of uh, peer review and they were funded by the European Union and a lot of them tell me that it's extraordinary that we are probably the only place in the world where we still believe in intuition and that's something that I want to uh, actually to cherish and promote and, uh, and be kind of like the politician that believes behind the scenes and push it because we need that intuition of scientists even if we don't know if we'll get any result out of it not in five or ten or fifty years. That's interesting because that's not very Cartesian. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's, uh, I think it's needed because, you know, I think that when the world advanced and when science really provided the world with great things is when uh, we believed in intuition. Who would have said that when Einstein um, basically talked about antimatter, that will be uh, today the scans that we do for cancer. If you have any opinions on the ever-rising demand for ever more scarce cobalt, please do put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com. Or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, we turn to the issue of energy management. In the future, we hope, homes will use electricity much more sensibly than they do now. Things like turning off the lights automatically when nobody's around or adjusting the heating to suit a householder's daily routine. You can already buy plug-in devices that do some of these things. But... Lurking in every home, usually in a dark cupboard or down somewhere in the basement covered in spider webs, is a humble piece of equipment that, with a little bit of tweaking, could replace all of these things with a single command centre. I'm joined by our innovation editor, Paul Markilli. Hi, Paul. Hi. 
So what is this mystery piece of equipment? Well, us old folk would call it a fuse box, although it doesn't actually have fuses in anymore. They have electromechanical devices called circuit breakers. And what happens is there's a power surge uh, caused by a short circuit or something. These trigger and cut the circuit, which stop you being electrocuted or your house burning down. So they're very useful. But sitting right at the centre of the house, all the wires going to the house come from this box. So it's an ideal place to actually monitor what's going on in the house and control items. And that's what some companies are doing now. Um, for instance, um, Eaton, a big multinational, is carrying out trials in uh, the United States uh, using um, the circuit breakers with added electronics to monitor and control things uh, for this very purpose. Other companies are looking at the same thing, including Manitos Labs, a Swedish company. Now, they're looking at producing a digital solid-state circuit breaker, which has certain advantages because it can switch faster, it can do more things just as most digital devices can. And all of that put together, you end up with something that could be a very strong and powerful device sitting there, looking after your home, doing all sorts of jobs, making sure that your house is energy efficient, your electric car is being charged up at low rates and all these things. So rather than having a smart fridge and a smart TV and a smart toaster and a smart oven and, a, as you say, a car, the idea is you centralise all this control in one box. You can look at that central box on a smartphone app and say, well, I'm going to be home early tonight, so let's put the heating on a bit early so you can operate it remotely. So, yes, you could do that. And, and these um, circuit breakers would communicate wirelessly over the Internet with these devices as well. So the devices need to be a bit smarter than they are now. It's not completely dumb, but they would uh, be controlled by those switches and by software that runs actually in the circuit breaker box. So if you can control when things come on and when they switch off, you might be able to shave a bit of money off your electricity bill, which is obviously quite attractive. But does it let you do other things besides new energy management features? Yes, indeed. You could bring all sorts of new features on. Um, Manitos say, for instance, that their digital breakers will be sensitive enough to actually measure the RPM in the compressor in your refrigerator. That's how fast it's turning around, which would show, A, if it's working, and B, if it's about to break down. So it could actually warn you, your fridge is about to go kaput. Also, uh, each circuit could have a, a meter in it. So you could meter individually different parts of your house and even different plug sockets, which would allow the utilities, for instance, to perhaps offer you a different rate for your lighting circuit to the one that charges up your electric car. So that could bring in whole new pricing models for electricity. Whole new pricing models might sound a little ominous, though. We already see with things like Uber, they have surge pricing when things are busy. What's to say your power company might not do surge pricing when the World Cup final is on and you're paying a pound an hour to watch TV? It could well do that. But grids are also getting smarter. Grids are producing electricity and producing electricity locally. And your house might be producing electricity from solar panels and even from batteries in the basement or something. So, so there's a bit of a two-way street developing here. So yes, there is always that view that you're going to end up paying more for something. But you might end up paying less for something too.
And will these things actually be coming out of the lab and into a house anywhere near me anytime soon? Well, traditional circuit breakers, which have had electronics added to them, are in homes at the moment being tested. So they're the closest. They, they could be a few years away from mass adoption, but they're, they're much the closest. The digital solid state versions, some in commercial premises and industrial premises, first of all, but um, they could come too. Much will depend on whether they can bring the cost of those down with the mechanical ones and also whether regulators will be happy with them as well because after all the fuse box or the circuit breaker box as I should properly call it does a, has a very important safety role in the house and so people don't want to upset that. Paul, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's copy of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 